Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello podcast fans, I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. Today, Unai Emery wins at tactics as Arsenal impress against Manchester United. Spurs' crisis level is upgraded from slight to mini. And can the dynamic title-chasing duo both go the rest of the season unbeaten? There's cheers for second city hero Jack Grealish, but jeers for misbehaving Jordan Pickford and some dabbling with schadenfreude over PSG and Real Madrid's Champions League exits. Let's take you now into the audio recording facility where I'm joined by our football news overlord. It's Matt Law making his return. How are you, Matt? Hello. Yeah, good. Excellent after yesterday. Yep. Big Birmingham City uh, defeat, defeat to Aston Villa, the world's greatest <laughs> football club. Yes, alongside him is the continent of Europe's biggest fan, Nina Rizuki. What's happening, Nina? Well, well, I got up about an hour ago, so the fact I made it here is almost a miracle. Congratulations! Thank you, and thank you. <laughs> it's eleven a.m. for people listening, <laughs> so that you know she only got up at ten a.m. Okay, listen, I was supposed to get up an hour before that, but my I didn't snooze it correctly. So. Such is your dedication to Europe, you're on their time soon. <laughs> Completing our lineup, sat in the tactics chair, which he has made his own. Good morning, JJ Ball. Hello, I've been here for a long time, uh, since half six. Half six, yes. sitting in the audio recording facility. That's right, and I was in Scotland <laughs> on the weekend. Oh, what's the time zone there? Um, it's nine. <laughs> Incorrect answer. Let's start with the biggest <laughs> match of the weekend and probably one of the most exciting matches of the weekend. Arsenal beating Manchester United at the Emirates Stadium. What a treat to see this fixture freed from the tedium of Arsene Wenger and Jose Mourinho. Did we all enjoy this football match? I thought it was very interesting. Um, and I, Yes, I did enjoy it. I don't know about the tedium of Wenger and, um, and Jose, but it was... Odd that Solskjaer lined up just like the old Ferguson teams did in that four four two. I think uh, Unai Emery absolutely nailed the tactical setup for it, and his players seemed far more fired up from the very start of the game. Really took it to Man United, and I don't know if United adjusted quickly enough, or if, I guess they were shorter players. Everything I noticed is that Fred is how on earth anyone thought he was worth fifty million pounds. Yeah, I know. I agree. I mean, maybe next season he'll be a lot better. Players sometimes take a time to come 
towards Possibly. it. But he's making basic mistakes that their youngsters don't seem to be making. This is I, I there was this was the whole thing about the goal. I was like, you know, everyone was t- talking about De Gea, and I was like, no, no one closed down. No one closed down Xhaka. And he was standing just right there and he was just watching everything unfold. And in my head, it's like, you have to see that there's a runner, there's a guy free on the ball and he's capable of shots like that. Go and stop him. What do you think about the whole De Gea thing, by the way? De Gea, the goal that Xhaka scored? Yeah, I mean, is it like, um, do you think that somebody of his quality should have been able to save that? <sighs> I think if David De Gea, one of the world's best goalkeepers and one of the best Premier League's ever had, if he's not saving it, it's probably a reason that he's... That's what I'm thinking, right? It. It, it looked fairly simple from what they were showing in the replay that he took a step left that was probably a mistake. Um, but, but I guess no, but in 99% ball, yeah. of circumstances, that, that step left is the right decision because the ball doesn't take that weird flight. It's where, you, yeah. where, it's where it looks like he's going to hit it. So Jack has maybe given him the eyes. But that, that does work when you're playing football. And then Jacques, the way his body lines up looks like he's going to hit it towards that post. So De Gea's naturally going that way because that's where you'd anticipate. And it swings like so violently to the other, the other way. Like I was did a, a thing once with some footballers in Morecambe, <laughs> that, the <laughs> land of football. <laughs> but they were all... Uh, <laughs> they were all... Um, I can't remember who they were playing for. Now. I think it was Morecambe they played for. And they, they were all free kick specialists. And they were doing it with a, a kicking coach who's... Um, uh, Bartek Sylvester, I think is his name. He's, I think he's a coach at Brentford, maybe. Anyway, he's a free kick coach, kicking coach. And uh, he was getting them to hit knuckleballs. And I was standing in goal, and I'm not a keeper at all. But the thing would come towards you, and you'd take one little step towards where it's going, and it would fly in another direction. And I just think the way that Xhaka caught it was slightly weird. I don't think he caught it the way he wanted, and that's why it swung out and beat him. David De Gea's got more in common with JJ Ball than he might have suspected. Uh, speaking of goalkeepers, Matt, uh, good game for Leno in the other goal for Arsenal. Where would you put him in the ranking of Premier League goalkeepers at the moment based on his start to life at Arsenal? That's assuming I have a ranking of Premier League goalkeepers. <laughs> Is that not what you're looking at on your Available laptop? in my head. No, I'm looking at a ranking of actually year-on-year performance change in Premier League, yeah. which is favorite? to do with Arsenal. My favourite goalie. Uh, so it's boring hard. to say, but De Gea probably. I like um, Etheridge. Yeah, he's really good. I, I like it's Etheridge, so actually. Someone should buy Etheridge. He's um, keeping the very talented Alex Smithies out of the Cardiff. Team. I like Angus Gunn a lot as well. I think he's really good. Um, but Leno's just sort of just below the best. He had a good game. He's had some bad games. I don't have a strong opinion on Leno, if I'm quite honest with you. But I would like to talk about the rankings that are in front of me in regards to this Arsenal match. Mm. Because Arsenal are 12 points better off this season than at this stage last season. Wow. Which is the best. I'm oh, sorry, Liverpool are 13. Um, but 13 apart from Liverpool, off. it's the best of everybody. So Emery is doing a really good job despite a bad result in the Europa League and despite issues that have continued through the season. You've got to say that the improvement and the fact he's got them in there fighting for fourth, he's, he's doing a really good job. They with certainly them. looked motivated on Sunday. They were snapping into tackles and uh, they were first to a lot of the sort of 50-50 balls, Mina. Um, do you think Emery has done a, a good job in that respect? He has sort of seemed to change the mentality of Arsenal a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I was fairly critical of them despite the fact that they went on that great run in which they kept like, you know, collecting points. But I was like, oh, their defence looks bad and... I wasn't sure about the attack at all times, but I feel like what I said last week was that you're seeing more of a team performance. But a lot of the way that they played against United, I thought was intelligent from a psychological point of view because they had a very bad game against Ren. And there's obviously there's going to be that desire to avenge that defeat and do something special. And United had just come off this huge win 
which is perhaps not physically exhausting. Everyone was like, oh, maybe that's why United, it, could it possibly be that? And everyone was saying, no, it, it didn't look like they were unfit. But what they weren't doing was the sharp decisions. They were an emotional hangover, maybe. It's an emotional hangover. They were mentally just a little bit tired, which is why they created many chances, but perhaps didn't take them as well as they usually would in that circumstances. But it was just a case of what I loved about it was that Unai Emery decided to be courageous in the way that he put forward, you know, Aaron Ramsey and Mesut Ozil and Lacazette and Aubameyang and just went for it in the sense of, you know what, they're going to be tired. They're going to not expect this. So I'm not going to let them try to impose their pace on us or anything like that. I'm going to just go out there and be courageous. And I thought that was exactly the way that you should play it um, when you have a side that's just come from a Europe, you know, win in the way that United had. And for that reason, I, I never understand why more people don't play 3-5-2. I think it's a great sort of starter pack shape, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, it offers you a little bit of balance until you can find one that offers the same balance without the exhaustion of the 3-5-2. I just think it's a really good formation to start with when you're trying to build a good defense and, and trying to have an attack like on the transition. It's one of the best to use. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at you. It's, it's built for counter-attacking, built for defensive teams, because it means you've got five defenders in certain phases. But you saw it when England used that that kind of shape in the World Cup, especially that what happens is that you're just short of a man either side in midfield, so teams can easily get space. And that's how Croatia beat them in the semi-finals. They just had loads of space in the wide. But you can change it up. The thing that so they played a back three because in Manu we play a back a, a forward two. Which is where it came from in the first place. Yeah, is that having to try that three. to stop them. Yeah, have yeah, an extra man. At uh, absolutely, and they just had control of them. Um, man, you were clearly missing players. I totally agree with the point about the mentality of it because you saw all the build up to the PSG win. They had all um, Mike Phelan tweeting things and players. They were just talking about how they knew they were going to do this thing, and I yeah. bought into it. I was like, oh, they are going to do this, and they did, and it was amazing. <laughs> Whereas Arsenal just didn't seem to care about. That game against Ron, Ren, how do you say it, Ren? Yeah. And um, Ron. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Arsenal versus Ron. Ron, (laughs) big Ron, there we go. Uh, So when when Arsenal lost to Ron, it's because they weren't paying attention to what was going on. And so they had that big, you know, kick up the behind. So they were right going from the start of that game. Whereas Man knew, how could you possibly get up to that level again? It's impossible. And it's almost as though, because they've done so well, so many games in a row, I think it was six games away, games in in a row they'd won. It must be that they've all just kind of subconsciously accepted that at some point they will lose, and this is quite a nice time to do it. <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs> this seems like a decent it'd be, game. It'd be interesting now what happens with Arsenal because they've put themselves in a really good position to get top four, and they've got on paper, um, which often goes out the window in the last sort of nine or ten games, but on paper they've got the best running of all the top four teams. So now there's a, a bit of pressure on them again. But and a bit of expectation on them again. They've got no more top six teams to play. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, but they've got five away games and their record away from home is pretty poor. But I just think it'll be interesting now how they react to that. Rather than chasing, chasing, they've now got that little bit of expectation and pressure on them all of a sudden of what they should now achieve. And it'll be, it'll be good to see how they deal with that. But to be in that position, I think it's a real success for Emery this season. Less positive news in the race for the top four for Tottenham, who are having a worrying wobble in the league bit more than a wobble now, isn't it? Yeah. A couple of games as a wobble. What would you call it? <sighs> Mini crisis in the league. Mini crisis. Mini oh, crisis. Gone there. <laughs> Mini crisis in the league, yeah. I was, I was really surprised by that result. Having gone out to Dortmund with them last week and seen how expertly they coped with having a 3-0 lead, weathering a lot of pressure and coming through that very impressively, I really thought that would be the kickstart to just get back on it in the leagues. So and then... 
they played so well the first half against Southampton. They could have been three or four goals up easily. They were absolutely coasting. So then just switch off, I think, is very, very alarming for them. Is this the squad depth issue catching up with them? I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know if it's squad depth because I've argued for a while now that they do have a good squad. And I think through the Harry Kane injury, the Deli Alley injuries, that was proved because while Kane was out, they were doing well, actually. Weirdly, this has coincided with Kane coming back. I think there is an issue there with the age of their squad, um, which is surprisingly old. There's 12 players aged 27 or over now. It's, it's when getting did 27 old. become old? Yeah, but that's 27 or old, older. I mean, they've got quite a lot of 30-year-olds in there as well. I mean, Alder Vyrell, Dan You have to be 28 to be at your peak, though. So aren't they actually Possibly, players who are at But there? they're ageing together. There's not been a proper squad turnover there. Only three players, and that includes Skip and Walker Peters, are 22 and under. It's, it's becoming an old, old squad, that one. And also, within that, I think they've got other issues. You've got Christian Eriksen, who for the last month or so, has completely switched off. He's been mm. terrible. I think his future now is impacting on him. He hasn't agreed a new contract. There's a lot of speculation around him. It's clear he's thinking about his options. I think that has impacted on his performance. He's out of contract next season, is he? Yes. Um, and then Alderweireld has this contract clause. There's a lot of talk about him potentially going... I think there's a lot going on around that squad that's possibly impacted on a little bit of focus. And there's the whole Pochettino willy-won't-he go. Well, the thing you wrote about on Monday, Matt, is their need for a technical director. What's stopping that from happening at Spurs? It seems like it, it's... Well, Pochettino it, it, it stopped it. a no-brainer in modern football to have po- someone Pochettino doing that stopped it from happening. When Paul Mitchell left, who wasn't a director of football as such, but held a sort of similar type of role... Um, it was discussed about bringing one in and Pochettino didn't want one to come in. That's unusual for a European manager, right? Because it's so standard on the continent to have someone working above the manager like that. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, he definitely had, had that Espanol? in Espanyol. But the problem with, obviously, he was a much smaller coach back then. But it was a bit annoying for him because his best players kept being sold off. And yet he continued to rebuild and rebuild. I almost feel like this is what Pochettino likes. He likes being the underdog. He likes the situation that's oh, yeah, pretty bad. Sure. And then he can continue to make it work, despite that fact. But... You're right. I feel like, especially in midfield, there's a lack of leadership with Ericsson just completely switching on. They, but what, what they need now is they need someone They need someone who is in charge of not just the here and now with that squad. Pochettino is in charge of the here and now with that squad and has done a brilliant job. But the fact that that squad is just not evolving and is being allowed to be just to get old on these contract issues shows that there needs to be someone else looking at that squad and, and where it's going to be two years down the line. They also need someone on the off chance Pochettino leaves coming up with a succession plan for Pochettino you've got to have that now in case you've got to have a succession plan in case Harry Kane leaves at some stage they need to be looking forwards and Levy's been concentrating on the stadium Pochettino's managing the maximum amount of that squad in terms of the here and now it feels like there's no one looking at the future I mean I feel like uh, this is the thing. If Pochettino goes, they should just go for Monaco's Jardim because if there's any man who understands how to make it work when you don't have a squad or when you're not spending money, it's certainly that guy. So if you think Poch is good, Jardim is even better. It's a little bit like when David Moyes was very good at Everton and he had a team punching well above its weight, uh, doing it on a small budget, not really being able to bring in lots of good players. And then he got to the point where Manchester United were interested in him. <laughs> and then he went to Man United and it turns out that 
it's different being the underdog than it is being the guy in charge of a huge budget, huge club. So you don't think Pochettino can make it to United? I don't know. So I've been doing this a lot of research recently on the peak age of managers, and um, I'll, I'll, it'll be in uh, on the website at some point soon. But uh, Pochettino, <laughs> I can't go too much into this, but he's basically already missed his uh, chance to win something by a certain age that all great managers have won something at, uh, which is about forty-three. And what if you came into it at fifty? Well, there's there's different when there's going to be different anomalies, and some managers win later on and stuff. But uh, the way Pochettino is, is at Spurs just now, it reminds me very much of how highly rated Moyes was. And I don't know if there's, a, I remember there's a, a conversation I think on Sky Sport or BT Sport one or two over the weekend, and they were saying how they enjoyed watching Spurs more a couple of seasons ago because it was more exciting. But I don't think they've been. I mean, I'm sure people enjoy watching them. I they don't really ever grab me as being hugely entertaining. I thought they just get results and they play fine and they know they manage games well, which is kind of what... I mean, I'm not saying he's Moyes. I think Pochettino's probably a better manager. Uh, I just probably. see some... Well, but then, I mean, neither has really won anything and Moyes had won a league title yeah, at a lower level. Yes, I understand, but Everton weren't really competing in the Champions League and, and defeating Borussia Dortmund that long. That's what, true. Seven he was yeah. incredibly well regarded there, Moyes, when he, when he got the United job. I mean, it, you know. Incredibly regarded and, and he did a very good job with an Everton side that was trying to push into, you know, a top six position. Mm. But I think Pochettino's already top four. I think he's consolidated his ability to do that despite not spending money. Um, and, and you're right, with the those are the, the things that you have in common with Everton. But then he's also doing it in Europe. He's still masterminding Totally, that's why wins. I think he's a, good man, a better manager because he's done those sorts of things. But kind of where they're at now, they're almost at that ceiling. And that squad rebuild is really interesting because then you need to have youngsters coming through. Is it from the academy? I don't know what they're buying in to, to bring through for future future Spurs teams. Maybe it's just one yeah. step up on a rung of a ladder for Pochettino to United right. at this point, and it was too many rungs for David Moyes to manage. Up at the top of the table, Raheem Sterling, with a 33.3% recurring controversial hat-trick, <laughs> gave Manchester City a good win against Watford. Uh, Pep said it would be almost impossible for them not to drop any points between now and the end of the season, but can you see anyone beating them in what remains of their fixtures? Um, no. I don't know the rest of their I don't know them all off by heart. That's what I was thinking. Poor preparation. If you're going to ask me if I think they're good. It's definitely poor. (laughs) But I mean, when Watford makes six, seven changes, it's like, you know, let's be honest, what did we expect over here? And and it's true. They And despite that, I thought they were, you know, not bad when they started the match. And of course, that goal, Sterling's ridiculously offside Mm. goal that wasn't noticed, just sort of took them off. I started watching that Sterling offside goal. I started questioning myself, like, do I actually understand the offside rule? (laughs) I've seen that a lot this season, yeah. It's like, how is that just not offside? And how is there even a debate? And I couldn't get my head around where the debate even lay. And I started to watch it thinking... I don't think I know the offside rule anymore because <laughs> Do I don't understand how there's a debate. Something. It's just so obvious. He was explaining something to our watch player. I to forgot. Andre Gray. That's it. Andre and Gray then, actually And then Gray starts to, to understand not, it and yeah. be like, yeah, okay. But what's the to point. even... I don't even know what's the to ex- explain on it. I, it's like with the the, um, the Harry Kane one the other day and there was so much debate about it and like all this. And you just sit there thinking, do I actually know the rules anymore? We should be clear. I'm so hey, caught up in, in it folk haven't seen it. So... Because Sterling is in an offside position when the ball comes through to him, but the referee and the linesman talked and seemed to agree that the ball came off. I think it was Jan Matt went yeah. to a tackle. Mm. So Sterling was offside, but Jan Matt got to the ball first, which effectively changes the phase of play. But because he's, it should be within a certain yardage, if that's a word, to the ball, then he's, whether he's um, affecting play or not, 
It's such a weird rule. There's a problem, though, isn't there? If the vast majority of people watching the game, even if they are, to use you know inverted commas, just fans, <laughs> think something is offside and it's not given as offside. Like, you know, the, the, you've got to look at the law then, surely. It seems like, so a lot of people have been having a go at VAR this, this, uh, and recently saying that VAR is wrong, it's written in the game. But I think it's just the rules. VAR is helping them apply the rules as, the, as though they are written. So, mm. yeah, it must be, it's the law that's... Unclear. <laughs> I think it needs to. It's also because it's the first phase, the second phase, the third phase of play is confusing me because you're like, wait, hold on, that so that's ended, and now we have to have a whole new phase. And yeah. and you see more players standing offside positions now. I find because they, I think they must because it must take a, a while to to um, adapt to the changing rules, so you can make sure you're onside for offside for a certain phase of play because you know you'll be onside for the next bit. And you see strikers will just wait a little bit because they know they'll be onside once the. I also think it's going to get worse next year because VAR, I mean, you, you, you'll literally be offside if your knee's offside, or if like, your mm. nose is offside. But this is the spirit or, of the law. Isn't it the whole point of being offside is that you're gaining an advantage? But if you have a bigger nose and that inch of your extra nose yeah, ex- is... Exactly. I mean, is that really gaining an or advantage? Your, or your, you or your like, knee is just sticking out a bit further. Yeah, or you your heel or something. You know? It's just... It's going to get horrendous. It's going to make some very, very tedious podcasts, isn't it, next year, unfortunately. (laughs) What about Liverpool? A win for them, 4-2 against Burnley on Sunday. Uh, Their fixtures that remain, they've got Tottenham at home, uh, Chelsea at home as well, potentially a tricky game against Wolves as well, also at home on the final day of the season. Are they dropping any points either? Yes, I think they will. I, I could actually see, I know that it's a bad... Um, that we've just talked about Tottenham's bad form, but I can see Tottenham going there and getting something. They just, really? it just strike, it just strikes me again. Yesterday, I mean, I didn't watch it closely because I was watching the weekend's biggest game. Um, we'll which, get to it, Matt. Which wasn't at Anfield <laughs> or at the Emirates. Um, but just from watching the bits I did and watching the highlights, it still looked like this nervous energy around Anfield, which this, earlier in the season was like a party and a carnival and was helping them. And I still think it's going to trip them up a little bit this season that they're so desperate to do it. Mm. They're so desperate to do it that it makes it more difficult for them. And I just think they're going to trip up a couple of places. Yeah, I, I don't know what to make of them because every time I watch them, I'm just I'm not very convinced of the way that they're playing their football. But then they'll get these goals that I'll be like, okay, well, if you're still managing that, then... You know, you're still creating... Well, what was encouraging yesterday is it seemed the front three came alive again. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, they'd gone a bit quiet and they looked to be struggling. And all the front three played well yesterday. And, and I don't know whether they played and... well or almost. It was lucky. Not lucky, but there were certain moments where, for example, you know, Firmino jumping onto Salah, not doing anything with that goal. And then it sort of passes on to Firmino, who m- manages to follow up and score the goal. Um and I was reading some of the, the reactions to it, and everyone was like, oh, it was wonderful how involved all three were. And I'm like, but a lot of it was mistakes that you managed to correct, or it was luck, like the, the ball would roll over. I don't know whether it was Firmino's first goal, right, that it just rolled over to him, and he it, was, it fell kindly to him because of a distraction between the goalkeeper and defender and a miscommunication. I'm not sure any of these are goals that you think this is great team play, this is really, you know, like, putting forward a cohesive plan but they're still getting the points right? it's sort of part of the plan the strategy because that's what counter pressing gig and pressing is when they go right up the pitch they're in a narrow shape so that when the ball does drop there's someone there to take it on 
But it, it's not Gengen pressing if Heaton is delivering the ball to Salah's feet. Or <laughs> no, that's, you know? uh, that was a bad goal kick. But then, um, so f- for example, the, the the Firmino goal where he taps it in is he's in position there because the front three are so narrow. And Charlie Taylor puts in a really good tackle, but it, he kept getting done. Actually, they were making good tackles, and the ball was rolling to someone yeah. to tap it in. And it's all to do with the shape of there. I think um, Andrew Robertson's not been very good recently. I don't know what's happened to him. No. He's, uh, his, his touch and passing seemed to be off. Adam Lallana played. I thought he was absolutely fine. don't think he brought too much to it. You don't think he was great? No, I don't think so, no. I think he did. He, he moves the ball quickly, but I don't, I, I don't get it. I thought Lallana. he was quite good in the pressing. Yeah, he's good at that. He's good at moving the ball quickly. I just don't think... It, it, I don't know... I think that scoreline is very um, good for Liverpool because there is that nervous energy and I think that scoreline is kind of a, oh, we are actually quite good, we can harness this, we can handle it. Uh, I can't see both Liverpool and Man City going unbeaten for the rest of the season. They'll drop points at some Yeah, I agree with you. And it's a title race, isn't it, which which should be exciting. Notice, Matt, you didn't say Chelsea were going to give Liverpool any problems at Anfield. Uh, They might do. Well, judging by their game against Wolves on Sunday, not... All that much to worry about there. <clears throat> Whenever I see Chelsea on TV at Stamford Bridge, I just get this sense that they're kind of just fulfilling the fixtures out of duty at this point in the season now. Like <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're going through the motions that. a little bit. I've I've developed a theory the last few games, which uh, came to fruition slightly. I thought on Sunday when Chelsea got booed off at half time, having had almost eighty percent possession. Chelsea fans don't like possession football. They, they they're not used to it. They don't like it. They like They've been brought up, this generation of Chelsea fans, on a lot of counter-attacking, sucker-punch-type football with Mourinho and Conte. That's how they won things. They found it more exciting. I just don't think... They think they want passing football. They think they want the Guardiola style and all that. In actual fact, I don't think they do. I think their culture's all about being this like nasty counter-attacking, Atletico Madrid-style team that other fans hate. And before that, they were kind of a lot of flair, a lot of glamour, kind of European... uh, Way back. Yeah, yeah, way back. But um, I I just think this this generation of Chelsea and what they've built their success on is so much about being horrible and annoying other teams and being nasty and catching teams out and giving people bloody noses and taking advantage of Gerrard slipping over. And Sarri is so not that... And I don't think they're ever going to get used to it. I really do not think they're ever going to get used to it. I just think they're not having it. And um, poor old Jorginho, who hasn't been all that bad, has become the poster boy for Sari Ball, which the Chelsea fans don't like. And now they don't like him because of it. And it's a really weird situation. They really are the odd couple, and I just can't see it working. We've returned to Jorginho now, have we? We after a spell of Hawkeenio. I'm unclear about this. I don't this. know. I'm unclear about this. Mina Rizuki, pronunciation correspondent. It is Jorginho. Well, Thank that's you how I know much. it. First um, one ever, I've got that right. <laughs> this isn't—they're not playing Saudi ball, which is what's bothering me about all this. As I'm not is, saying they are though, no, but they are playing yeah. possession football. No, but everyone is saying Saudi ball's not not actually working out here, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not sure this is Saudi ball anymore, because actually, then like his sides have never been just let's keep possession in the way that a lot of the times Pep was accused of that kind of football. His was considered dynamic and vertical tiki taka, where the ball constantly had to go forward. But on this occasion, it just goes sideways. And it's really very dull to watch. And you look at it and you just think, there's so much not clicking here. And I do think that it's, it's sad that Jorginho is getting all of these um, insults and everyone's talking about him. But actually, 
I thought Sally made a great point afterwards when he was talking about this. And he said, Jorginho is still very good, but there's no mobility up front. There's no movements, you know. There's Higuain is not necessarily clicking with these forwards line. They're not all interchanging positions and exploiting gaps and having midfield runners coming in and trying to stretch and move in, in, in front, which allows... You are as good as your striker if you are like an Andrea Pirlo type or if you are a Jorginho type. If you are trying to create, you need mobility up front. Look at Madison and Vardy. Vardy's constantly looking to see when that ball is going to be delivered and he's there to make the runs. That's not happening. So Jorginho's just got nobody running in front of him and then he can't pass the ball or do the anything special. The only thing I'd say about that, that was to my question, by the way, that, that response, the Jorginho thing you liked was to my question yesterday. Oh. Um, <laughs> But um, the well done, thanks. <laughs> the only thing I would say on that is I don't think that Sari's response on that has done Jorginho a favour because what he's essentially said to a guy who's already getting targeted by the fans is he's only bad because everyone else is worse. And what Jorginho himself said in interviews <laughs> ahead of the weekend was, I don't want to be seen as like Sari's special one or Sari's teacher's pet. I want people to drop that. I don't like it. It's not doing me any favours. And what Sorry's kind of done is spoken to that by kind of saying, well, well, yeah, he didn't play well, but it's everyone else's fault, not his. I, I do think that he, that's and what I he's get what you're saying. Say. I think he's saying that that forward line is good enough to resolve situation on its own in the way that Hazard managed to do at the end. And Higuain is obviously a very good player. But what it doesn't help is that the forward line isn't mobile enough to bring out the best of your midfielders. In order for a midfielder, for a Coutinho-style player to really, I think, show what he can do you need a lot of mobility up front like imagine you had Jorginho in Liverpool right now like he I don't think that you would necessarily defend him out the game in the same way that you would because you'd be so heavily concentrated on the front three and the, their mobility that you're not looking to take him out of the game but because those front three in Chelsea or whoever it is sometimes can be static there's not enough movement you can effectively just take Jorginho out of the game and then you've ruined the whole of Chelsea's plan <laughs> the interesting thing is they finished yesterday's game by the time they got the equaliser uh, he changed to four-two-three-one, which is the first time he's ever done it after he took Jorginho off, and that's been a system the fans have been crying out for. Again, a system widely used by Mourinho, not a sorry thing at all, mm. um, but they've been crying out for that. But he said afterwards that he took Jorginho off because he doesn't think he can play in a four-two-three-one. So interesting, but I, I think they will continue to pick up enough winners to stay in the race but I would still be surprised if they finish in the top four moving dramatically north now to Newcastle where Jordan Pickford had a moment of madness to give away a penalty in an amazing game uh, Newcastle seeing off Everton uh, what do we make of Jordan Pickford's season JJ <laughs> he is the child that has had too much juice <laughs> <laughs> I think he's great fun to watch. I think we said a few weeks ago that he's a wee bit like Joe Hart when he's, you know, very wild and making loud noises and chasing things around. Maybe not as focused as he should be. It's astonishing that the referee didn't think um, he should be sent off for rugby tackling. I think it's runned onto the ground for the penalty that he then saved. He's, uh, I don't know, Pickford's had a wee bit of a drop since the World Cup. Maybe um, maybe he's feeling the fatigue now later on because it's mental. He's just a bit sleepy. Maybe quite possible. I think I think he has got carried away with the World Cup. I think he's had a mad season, not a game of madness. Um, I've interviewed him a few times. Ringley, he's a lovely lad. Um, I don't think I'm doing anyone a disservice by saying he's not the brightest. Um, and I think he's got so whipped up on that World Cup, and he's coming onto it. And 
he's used it in the wrong way. He's used the energy in the wrong way. And he used the energy of being a boyhood Sunderland fan playing against Newcastle and wanting to get one over on them in the wrong way, sticking his tongue out at the fans and stuff. It's just silly. It's not like harmful. It's not like we should be killing him for it, but it's just silly and he needs to he needs to mature a little bit, I think. Let's turn our attention to the bottom of the table. Surprise win for Cardiff. Uh, Brighton seeing off Palace in the uh, derby that doesn't make any sense at Selhurst <laughs> Park. Um, Burnley now only two points from safety. If we assume Fulham and Huddersfield are doomed, who do we think is taking that final relegation spot? Um, it's got to be Cardiff. Mm. I don't think they've got enough about them. I think Burnley have... Uh, it'll be very tight between those two. I think Southampton will get some more points. They were excellent on the weekend. I still don't think Cardiff have the players. Although I think Warnock's very good at make, you know creating that siege mentality. But Price for Neil Warnock. Well, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> How far ahead of Brighton? They've got 33 points. Yeah, they're five points off the, okay. that bit. Um, yeah, it's got to be Cardiff and, between Cardiff and Burnley. Any objections to that? Well, I hope it's not Cardiff. I really think they deserve to uh, to stay up. Actually, they've I made really such like a good them. fist of fighting. Yeah, for it with yeah. Compare uh, them to Fulham and Huddersfield. Exactly. Yeah. I, I'd love to see them stay up. Um, at one stage at the weekend, it looked like it was going to be an incredible weekend for them, didn't it? And then it all just flipped over. Yes, yeah, Southampton were in the bottom three. Yeah, I mean Southampton point. suddenly looked like they had that bounce with uh, with Ralph, and then. Um, it looked like it might be going south again, but they're, uh, that, that's a big win. I, I agree with JJ. If I was going to put any money on it, I'd put it on Cardiff, but I so hope they do it. You're listening to the Telegraph Audio Football Club, part of the Telegraph Podcasting Network. To find more of our podcasts, just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Let's move down a division now into the championship and a very exciting game. <laughs> Matt Law pumping the air with his fist uh, at St Andrews. Absolute insanity. Jack Grealish lamped by a pitch invader, Paul Mitchell. Went on to score the winner, obviously, which was a brilliant moment. But what's the appropriate punishment for the pitch invader, Matt? And for Birmingham? Uh, I don't know, really. I think people have gone a little bit over the top um, with saying they should have points deductions and the stadium closed. It's not like this hasn't happened before. I mean, this was shocking because he actually managed to make contact with with Grealish. Um, But I don't think you should be deducting points for it or even closing the whole stadium. I think maybe they need to, in future, close off the first few rows of the stands or something like that to make it harder for people to to get down. Um, I mean, it was shocking. And don't get me wrong, terrible, absolutely disgraceful. And, you know this guy should get locked up and put in a cell and made to watch Grealish's winner on repeat for the rest of his life. There you go, that's the appropriate punishment. That's a really good punishment. Exactly. Um, But I mean, what a hero. What an absolute hero to have that done to him. Get up and cope with it amazingly and then score the winner and jump in in with the fans. I mean, I'm not going to give her exact age because she listens to this podcast and she'll kill me. But my mother is over 70 years old and she was texting me saying Jack Grealish is an absolute hero. She's in love with him. She's going to get the haircut. (laughs) I'm in love with him. If I was <laughs> if I was 20 years younger, I'd definitely go and get the haircut and have his face plastered all over. Is there no wasp. lingering? Um, I'll go and get my my little boy who's three. Go and get him and Jack Grealish haircut. <laughs> yeah, easily calling the NSPCC. Is <laughs> there any lingering resentment among Villa fans for his attempts to get a move away? Uh, no, because I don't. Summer? He didn't. Exa- it's not like he handed a transfer request in and did anything awful. He um, 
he admitted afterwards he was honest that he thought he was going and he was he was up for it. But I don't think he did it in a terrible way. And he's such a local boy hero now. You can tell. I mean, he's been out for three months. He comes back after three months and scores the world's best volley. And then the next game gets hit by a Birmingham supporter and scores the winner. It's just brilliant. He's, he's Villa's Harry Kane. He is absolutely Villa's Harry Kane. He can stick around there. I loved afterwards uh, what he the said. Best day of my uh, life. Best day of my life. Just like, uh, he, he's allowed to say that because he hasn't got children. One of my favourite things <laughs> in the world is when footballers say that and, uh, and they've already had I would love him to stay forever. I'd absolutely love him to stay forever. You never know. But... Um, he could. People laugh at me for this. People who don't watch Villa much and don't watch Grealish much will laugh at me for this. But he could play for any of the top six in Premier League. He could play for Man City. It'd be. He wouldn't get in their team every week. He'd be on the bench most weeks. But he'd be good enough to play for Man City. He is a brilliant, brilliant footballer, and he's brave as anything with the ball and with getting kicked. He's fantastic. It was though one of a number of unsavoury crowd incidents over the weekend, and and in fact over the season there seems to have been a little bit of a rise. Is that a coincidence or do we think it's a trend? It's really difficult, isn't it? It's happened quite a lot in Scotland this year. There's been a few coin-throwing things, uh, incidents. Neil Lennon got a coin chucked off him. They had a... I mean, it's been going on for ages, the sectarian chanting by Rangers and Celtic fans. But it's those. And uh, it often gets swept under. Like, you don't want to talk about it because you don't want to highlight it. But it does happen in most games. You hear it in, on the TV. Um, is it a... There's people who are talking about it being maybe a part of society represents it because you go to the football and it's a, almost a safe place where you can say whatever you want. You can do it. You can say these things. That's where you're allowed to do it for an hour and a half. You can vent off steam is often what it said. But it, the whole world's in a weird place just now. That's, I mean, it's not a coincidence that the country's turning to people's behaviour is as well, is it? I mean, yeah, yeah. Through, look look through history, it tends to happen. What I, what I would say on the Grealish incident, I thought Dean Smith made a really good point, is that one of the most frightening aspects of it was the fact that once this guy got carted off, he went off with his arms in the air yes. triumphantly. Yes. And in Dean Smith's world, 15,000 people clapped and cheered him off. Like, he went off to a hero's reception within St Andrews. And it wasn't a minority. It wasn't like 100 people cheered and loads booed or whatever. They, they were properly cheering and clapping him off. That's frightening. And also the steward. Do you see the steward that got taken away? I'm not sure what actually happened with that. That was bizarre. The steward who got the guy actually did really well because that guy was about to get lamped by Tammy Abraham and a few other Villa players and unfortunately did his job far too well and got him out of there. Um, but yeah, the steward who then decided to put a knee into Grealish's back while he was celebrating his goal. It's just unbelievable that these things are happening. Let's move into the safe space now of the Champions League. Uh, Manchester United, brilliant turnaround uh, against PSG. Are PSG now Europe's biggest bottlers? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was funny. <laughs> it was a little bit funny. It's so strange to be feeling quite positive about Man United, isn't it? I've got no particular dislike for Manchester United, but I mean, I spent my you know childhood really bored with them winning everything. So yeah. you're used to them being the villains, but it's hard not to like them at the moment. I actively disliked them when I was growing up because <laughs> everyone supported them because they were the team that won. So yeah. you know, I grew up in Aberdeenshire, and you had people who should support Aberdeen who supported either Rangers or Celtic or Man United because they're the team that won everything. It used to be horrible, but you know I we... look forward to watching them now. A couple of seasons ago, but we do a lot of live blogs here. Um, I really hated watching Man United play, but now it's good fun. Is it because of Solskjaer? 
Yes. Yeah, <laughs> they were pretty, pretty much, lucky, weren't right? they? Are we allowed to say that? Yeah. What about PSG? They were pretty I mean, lucky where, where, PSG. How do they get break they, this stuck? They they can't because they're just a poorly run club. You know, when when you have Neymar's father sitting alongside the president and you know their best friends, and they get to he gets to choose how to run that dressing room. You know, when Cavani, who's a senator of the club, gets pushed aside by the new kid on the block because he's considered what a technical talent that's better than him then you you have a problem there. This is my issue when we were talking about Chelsea and Kepa and stuff. But the difference about this is is that the way that the club is being run is like as if it's being run by a fan. It, it, you know, there's it's let's let's buy two of the biggest players up forward, you know, like let's have Mbappe, let's have Neymar, but not invest properly into our midfield so that we can create a wonderful, you know, source of supply to the front line and also a defensive, you know, backbone for for or a protection for the defense. So you've got everything relying on Verratti. They can't play Rabiot because the technical director and the coach are arguing. Neymar gets to choose which games he plays. He's always injured around the time when he's actually wanted the most. There's just, there's, their money is misspent. There's no authority for the coach. Um, I don't think there's a, a great balance within the side. And I just think that you need to have a management structure, a technical director, a coach, and a president and more who all pull in the same direction. And you need veterans of the side who understand what it means to win. And I just don't think that this side is well packed with um, with balance. It's good for football that they fail, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Given everything that Mina said, it is actually good for football. Because if, if, if that worked, if what they were doing worked and they won the Champions League... It'd be bad for football because they're doing everything well, you the wrong want Man City way. City to win, they're pretty much exactly the same. But then, yeah. because they've steamrolled that league, <clears throat> and it's almost because the Premier League has such a it's closer match, especially with money. That it, no, it's just unfair. Everyone hates PSG, but City do exactly the same thing. Yeah, and Barcelona have spent PSG consecutively what, more but, but, but money. What Man City's definitely aren't doing are indulging the stars in the same way. When you've just talked about what Neymar's okay. allowed to do and yeah. stuff yeah. like that, that's true. They they run. Whether they're cheating FFP and whether they're um, spending way more than their rivals, they strike me as generally better run. a better run club. They and a more are. sensibly run club with a philosophy and a cohesion. It feels like we might have bled seamlessly into a song for Europe featuring <laughs> Mina Rizuki. Uh, tell us about Real Madrid, Mina, uh, a defeat to Ajax, another good-for-football result uh, in the Champions League. What's the reaction been like to that? And uh, is Jose Mourinho going back to Madrid? Is it good for football? I don't know what it is that people are really anti-Madrid for, for some reason. Um, well, it's, pro, it's more pro-Ajax than anti-Madrid. You know, I look at Madrid and they're always described as the team as the Galacticos. But since 2014, they haven't really bought a big player. I mean, really, James Rodriguez was the last big player that they've bought in. They did stockpile, don't get me wrong, you know. Um, but all in all, I think their team is 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 quite a sweet one to be honest <laughs> I'm, I'm I like them you have reggae on now who's playing instead of Marcelo you have Danny Carvajal who's grown up with the team um you know Casemiro there is obviously stars and they have created a great side but yes Ajax are good because they have invested in youth and they bought it together but this is what is so interesting about Madrid this is a side that usually only comes into I don't know, fruition or starts to actually play good football around February. And they had started the season, started the year very well. And I thought Solari started to get it under wraps. They won over Atletico Madrid. It all seemed to be working better. Um, Benzema and Vinicius Jr. had a connection. You know, there were goals coming from other, other directions. And then all of a sudden, they played this great game against uh, Barcelona. 
And they lost midweek in the Copa del Rey. And that really harmed them on a psychological level. Now, had they had a better coach who understood how to pull them back on and get them all working in the same direction again and to not take that seriously, then I would have told you they would have done better. But two losses in a row brought them into this very nervous state of affairs. And and I think losing Ronaldo, losing Zinedine Zidane, and then having you know all of it sort of resting on their shoulders to once again try to produce something is difficult. Now, what I didn't like was after their loss to Ajax, what should have happened was Florentino Perez should have walked into that dressing room and said, you know what, guys, you've done amazingly. Four out of five Champions Leagues, you've been amazing. This is just a write-off year. We'll come back next year. We'll invest in the squad and we'll make it great. With Jose? (laughs) Well, whoever it is. But then he came back and just said to them that they had no passion and that they had no emotion. So it's like, this is not how you handle a club that's done so much over the last five years. You have to understand there's going to be a year where they don't do that. Mm. It does look to be Jose. He keeps talking about them. Um, And, you know, I mean, he's also talked about Inter, but that's also a possibility for him, to be very frank. I'd just love to see how Ramos would react to that. (laughs) Meanwhile, over in France, your old mate Hardim has turned it around for Monaco, uh, unbeaten in the last six. How has he done it, Mina? And will he stay there beyond the summer? Well, to be very honest, I think that he should he should definitely stay there. And in, in all honesty, I don't understand why he's not approached by different teams and different clubs. He's shown that he understands how to develop talent. He's developed Martial, Carrasco, um, obviously, you know, Mbappe. Uh, and let's be honest, that whole team was fantastic going forward. He knows how to play defensive football. He knows how to play offensive football. Um, I think that one thing, they're all just really glad to not be under Henri anymore, if I'm very if I'm very honest. I think they've got a lot more midfield control with Fabregas and Silva working together. Um, they have Sidibe and Balo Toure on the wings, who Balo Toure is actually just starting to do very well, providing the assists, really understands how to uh, play both phases of the game. And Falcao is coming through for them as well. Golovin is back from injury, so playing now with more consistency. I just think that Hadim is a guy that you listen to. He understands how to communicate with his players and he's good tactically. So if you love Pochettino, then I don't know why people aren't looking more at him. JJ, is that your dossier I can spot? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm clicking it open. <laughs> Imagine he has all these little files. I do. Oh, I can you not see it? <laughs> it definitely does. My desk is full of tactics drawings that I have to give to the graphics guys. Uh, anyway, yes. So this, this weekend, um, I looked at what uh, Brendan Rodgers, or Opel Rodgers, has done at Leicester recently, obviously started with a 2-1 loss at Watford. But uh, this this game he played against Fulham, uh, Leicester won it, and he has a very attacking team. And um, the thing he keeps talking about with Leicester is how Jimmy Vardy is integral to how they're going to play, and that he's the focus point of the team. So how do you get the ball to him? And the, the key for the pass in Vardy is getting the ball um, between the lines quickly, so you transition it forward very, very fast. And I thought the last player Rodgers really had that did that, he didn't really have one at Celtic, was um, Luis Suarez at Liverpool. So I was trying to compare Luis uh, Suarez and Jimmy Vardy, who are sort of similar players when you think about it. Quite, uh, I was going to say bitey, that's the wrong word. Um, you know, They're determined, they're very aggressive, they chase, they do all these things off the ball that you need them to do. However, when I looked into the stats of Jimmy Vardy's year, when he was he scored all the goals, was his 15-16 season that Leicester won the league. And I compared it to Luis Suarez's best season, which was the 13-14 season. Uh, it becomes clear that Luis Suarez is one of the greatest players we've ever seen in the <laughs> Premier League. So, for example, um, 
So Vardy was six, uh, 0.69 goals per game and Luis Suarez was uh, 0.94. That's obviously a good one. But when you look at things like dribbles attempted, Jimmy Vardy's 2.8 and Luis Suarez is 8.2. It's enormous. It's everything that Luis Suarez is doing. He did more of it. All the different stats you can look at, you can break it down on Opta, but Suarez is basically double everything that Vardy did. So Rodgers is talking up Vardy, but it kind of makes clear that if that's what he sees him as, he has a team half as good as the Liverpool one that he had. <laughs> so they shouldn't be able to get anywhere just yet. It's going to definitely take time. Good dossier. Please put it away. Finally, <laughs> Southend United centre-back Rob Keenan made his first appearance for nearly 18 months this weekend after returning from surgery on both of his knees. The question that we are putting to you, AFC teammates, is what is the greatest return to football you've ever seen? And three excellent responses on Twitter. Firstly, Chris says, Callum Wilson who ruptured both ACLs and then came back fitter and stronger to get an England call-up and a goal on his debut. Nick says, AFC Wimbledon only took nine years to reach the Football League again. We are the resurrection. And finally, <laughs> Shane says, my centre-back partner, who came back on to play the second half of a Sunday league game after six tall cans, two Jaegers, a whiskey and half a pack of smokes, after coming off with a rolled ankle on 15 minutes. Clear winner there. Can you beat it, Matt? I don't know if I can beat it. Um, one that strikes me is Sam Hutchinson, who was a young lad at Chelsea forced to retire with a very bad injury. He actually properly retired um, and then ended up coming back. And now he plays for Sheffield Wednesday. He's played for Forest, Vitesse Arnhem, which will make people laugh, although I think that Vitesse Arnhem was probably alone from Chelsea before he retired. Um He's now made over 100 appearances for Sheffield Wednesday, having thought his whole career was over. So that that is just a really nice story and comeback, I think. Agreed. Mina? Francesco Acerbi. Now, this is a player who uh, played for Sassuolo, came in, had testicular cancer, underwent surgery, overcame it, got back to playing. About three years later, he was done for... Well, I mean, suspected of doping, but actually the reason why he had elevated levels in his body was because the cancer had come back. Uh, and yet again, defeated it again, and did a tremendous job and then got a transfer to Lazio, who are doing really well this season and last season, in fact. Fairy tale ending. JJ? Yeah, that's really nice. So yeah. Please not stop. Uh, I always thought Alan Shearer never, no one really talked about the huge injuries he had. He had, he had two, at least two cruciate injuries that had him out for an entire season and not long after. So he signed for Newcastle and the first season when Keegan was there and then the second season with Doug Lee starting to come together he got injured, which really wrote them off and that's when they dropped down to about 13th position was when that happened. Uh, I remember this all very well. But Shearer was still the all-time you know, leading Premier League goal scorer, an absolute force all of the way through, having overcome the most difficult injury to overcome in football. That's all for this week. You can contact me on Twitter before next week's episode if you would like to. It's at Tom with an H Gibbs. Don't forget to send us an email too with topics for discussion, thoughts about football, or just encouragement. The address is afcpodcast.telegraph.co.uk and we will read out the best of what you send us. Don't forget also to subscribe to the podcast. Look for Telegraph Audio Football Club wherever you find yourself in the internet. You'll get to where you need to go. I'm backing you. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon.